Hello researchers I'm your host Suyash and welcome to the episode number 1 of the Research Guy podcast an initiative to train our curiosities to look at things around us on purpose Today with me I have Sesha Sai Mahadevan a chemical engineering doctoral student at Penn State University He is my mentor and also an alumni of NIT Trichy Today in the very first episode we address the elephant in the room of energy and fuels which is Can biofuels and renewable energy really replace fossil fuels completely? And is there a possibility that we might become one day a 100% bioeconomy with no dependence whatsoever on coal, petroleum and natural gas? Well, we'll also discuss how Sesha through his research on plastics has addressed some of these key challenges in the energy sector. Stay tuned to find answers to these often debated questions in the realms of energy and sustainable living. Happy listening. Hi Sesha how are you doing Uh hey so yeah, I'm I'm doing great it's going to be a winter storm uh, out here uh, in a couple of days for a couple of days so warmed up and uh, have a cup of hot chocolate here with me now Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, nice that's actually good Cool so okay we'll delve directly into the topic which most of my listeners are really wanting to listen from you So as I told you guys before that Sesha is a doctoral student at the Penn State University and he'll be talking about uh, renewable energy and ha- about his research on plastics and biofuels so sesha can you just brief us about your work at penn state and uh, how do you see it in the next 3 4 years uh thanks yash uh, for that introduction so uh, just to give a small perspective or a short uh, minute or so about my work i primarily work with uh, this technology called hydrothermal extraction where we essentially take Uh, all these waste and other uh, carbonaceous feedstuffs that you can get and process it in hot pressurized uh, fluids or liquid essentially hot pressurized water at uh, temperatures ranging from uh, like in and around the critical point so uh, we uh, convert these waste into uh, chemicals into oils particularly and also specialty chemicals uh, that have uh, value added propositions uh, and also detect uh, analyze whether uh, this entire system or technology is sustainable uh, for the given feedstock that we are uh, analyzing or not uh, and that's kind of uh, it's uh, more oriented with respect to the food water energy nexus of how we can uh, better utilize our uh, use our food as well as utilize the end of life of uh, all the waste that we atlas create as a society mhm okay so that's interesting so okay i have also heard about things like pyrolysis and gasification for uh, you know the same purpose so how do you differentiate between these processes and htl what are the advantages and uh, uh, drawbacks of htl over these processes so uh, one of the biggest uh, issues with pyrolysis or uh, gasification essentially is that you need your feedstocks to be to be really dry and that is something that is uh, really difficult to attain uh, for municipal solid waste food waste and a large variety of such feedstocks and uh, when we consider plastics or any other uh, dry carbonaceous feedstock as well they are predominantly going to be mixed with these uh, more uh, like moisture heavy feedstocks such as food waste for example so in so in pyrolysis you need to dry up or evaporate all the water in the feedstock and then further 
paralyze it and as you know the that in, involves a lot of energy to be expended in the evaporation process and uh, HTL subverts this by increasing the pressure along with the uh, temperature so that you need not essentially boil your water but would just heat it up uh, which uh, significantly saves up on energy cost uh, for the given feedstock. So that's predominantly why for wet feedstocks uh, HTL is rather preferred over uh, pyrolysis as the uh, commercial technique to be used. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is actually interesting because uh, given that the variety of feedstocks we get uh, as a generic waste in municipalities, it's good. Uh, I mean, if we don't need to spend extra energy in drying it up, that feedstock. But uh, as you began in the introduction that HTL requires very high amount of pressure. So how is it really compatible with respect to economical point of view? So that, that's a really good question. So higher the pressure, uh, more cost for your equipment and everything else that goes along with it. So that's one of the key things that we need to take into perspective. So uh, I am not here to say that hydrothermal fashion is uh, one all and it's the greatest technology ever. As like any other technology, it also has its limitations. And uh, we need to evaluate as to if uh, the pros for HTL that is saving up on the evaporation uh, energy cost would be uh, sufficient enough to give you an economic uh, advantage uh, from the pressure side of things. However, if you think from the sustainability point of view, energy is uh, kind of the number one uh, problem when you consider uh, like CO2 emissions and et cetera, et cetera, just because our current uh, energy infrastructure is kind of designed in that manner. So in that way, HTL uh, generally tends to be the more sustainable uh, methodology or the one that saves more energy and emissions as such. However, here in as well, we need to take into other accounts as well, such as heating your water up uh, along with the along with heating uh, rest of your feedstock as in view of the process. So it, it is really I, I personally feel it's really important uh, that people do more life cycle assessments and techno-economic analysis in order to counter uh, these uh, pros and cons between technologies before uh, finalizing. And this is not just uh, pertinent to waste management or uh, pyrolysis versus HTL, and, but this kind of uh, extrapolates to the wide range of research that everyone generally does. And, there needs to be a more profound awareness as to how sustainable research uh, needs to take place. Okay, that's an actually interesting standpoint that we don't really look at as uh, this versus this, but uh, we do the full assessment of everything and then see what can provide us more pros than cons. Cool. So, okay, my next question is on this thing only that how do you feel that HTL has progressed over the years and uh, do you see it as a possibility being scaled up to the industrial level in the future? So it, it is actually scaled up uh, at the moment even like uh, to industrial scale. There's this company called Lysella from uh, Australia who, are, who have uh, scaled up hydrothermal fraction as a commercial technology. Uh, but uh, so, but that's still just one company who has done that. And uh, for any, so pyrolysis, for example, has been researched from 1980s. And uh, has and now has lot more number of commercial plants because 
for every technology or uh, thing that comes out you need significant amount of research and development to go on for that to become an established technology just because you know you need to know the in and outs before making money out of something so that's essentially what was happening with htl where the first study started somewhere around 2000s and then uh, it has significantly been much more uh, realized as being a mature more of a mature technology around this point and i would say within like 5 to 10 years you can uh, see more people adopt this as a future technology as well or a more mature technology as a pyrolysis at the moment okay so it's actually relatively a very recent technology as compared to other conventional processes cool so for a very uh, on a very general perspective like if we talk about um, curbing the use of fossil fuels and moving on to renewable energy we generally talk about uh, biofuels i mean that comes as the first primary thing so my question to you is that how has htl really what is the whole mechanism as to how htl converts plastic to biofuels and is it the oil which is produced at the end what do you do with that oil i mean do you really convert it into value added products or if you modify its properties it can be used as fuel uh that's that's an interesting question and uh, first of all i would uh, kind of uh, not say what we do with htl of plastics to be biofuels essentially because uh, plastic is a bio resource uh, in any stretch or imagination so uh, when we talk about biofuels we predominantly want to talk about algae and biomass and all these things that can also be converted uh, into be produced like oil uh, from hydrothermal fashion so when we talk about like plastic to high, uh, like htl oil you again so when the type of products that we get from doing this entire process would also not just be a gasoline fraction or a kerosene fraction but again a mix of different fractions so as you can think plastic such as uh, let's take uh, so plastic is super generic of a term uh, to define the multifaceted Uh, number of uh, things that are present in post consumer waste so let me give you an example of a polyolefin or a polypropylene for that matter so th- those essentially break down by chain reactions when we do htl or any other thermal process and as you can imagine if you have a long chain of uh, hundred thousands of compounds and uh, you want to like randomly size it uh, it will generally produce a large distribution of different number of compounds and there will be a lot of thermodynamics taking place in such a high temperature process due to which at the end of the day it will give you a certain uh, mix of fractions and that will also be highly dependent on the process condition and uh, time and other things that you're going to be uh, putting it through so to kind of answer your question it does produce uh, a wide fraction of uh, products starting from gasoline to diesel to kerosene to wax and uh, all these can be further processed and like modeled as to how we want it at the end of the day uh, just by altering the process conditions and that's kind of where the science comes into play uh, or the chemical engineering aspects of process optimization come into play so the industry which you talked uh, which really the first which is a prior industry in setting up htl plant what does it uh, plans to do with the final products it gets 
So, uh, so after hydrothermal fashion or pyrolysis or any other technology that initially processes a given feedstock, they send it to upgrading uh, facilities uh, that you further uh, do catalysis and uh, further upgrade your uh, given crude oil to break it down to like smaller pieces. Uh, you, uh, they essentially add hydrogen and uh, a cobalt molybdenum type catalyst and then uh, High, like uh, dehydrogenate the entire like hydrogenate the entire system so that you get uh, simpler fractions uh, of products at large. Uh, so that's predominantly what happens uh, from the upcycling side of things. So the hashtail oil that we get at the end of the day can be more thought of like a crude oil as opposed to a finished product oil that you get uh, quite analogous to what you also see in the petrochemical industry nowadays. We are just going to change our source from uh, digging in wells to taking uh, waste from people. <laughs> right, right. That's actually interesting given the situation of the energy crisis in the world, actually. Okay, so in the recent articles uh, which you have written, I mean, I've read a few articles of yours and uh, apart from HDL being one of the common thing, I've also seen that you have worked a lot on synergistic interaction between biomass and plastic. So. Can you throw more light on how does it affect the properties of the final product and what fundamentally changes when we mix biomass with plastic and then use it in HDL? So uh, initial hypothesis at the moment is that the plastics are acting as a hydrogen donating agent and which further break down uh, the biomass to produce uh, more aromatic compounds, uh, which are uh, more favored to produce oil rather than solid phase products. And that is kind of why we are seeing, uh, we are calling this synergistic interaction, which essentially means that the oil yield of adding plastic and biomass together will be more than what you will uh, get from processing each of them separately. Uh, and this is what we are uh, kind of observing at the moment. And uh, the other great thing about this synergistic interaction is that it also brings down the depolymerization temperature of plastics. So if you do HTL of or process plastics alone, it processes at, processes at a higher temperature than what will happen for biomass. So when you can mix both of these together, you can process them uh, together at a lower temperature, uh, which is quite advantageous because industrially you don't want to have a multi-step process, uh, which is uh, for such a high pressure process, you don't want a multi-step, multi-temperature process, which is not particularly going to be economically or even practically uh, possible to do. So what is the difference in the products and how do you treat the end product differently if it was just plastic waste? Uh, I, I would just, I would say that uh, it wouldn't, so the properties of the products would definitely change. So for, for example, plastics generally produce lighter fractions than biomass. So if we add biomass and plastics together, we might be getting a blend uh, of lighter heavy fractions. However, I would still say that the type of compounds that are going to be formed are going to be uh, quite similar in nature of being hydrocarbons or uh, aromatic compounds uh, with cyclics or furans and such compounds which are going to have similar structures again and the upgrading process and the down the other uh, back-end or upcycling processes should still remain uh, predominantly the same uh, without significantly altering the entire system and the one really good thing about plastics again so one 
thing about HDL oil or producing oil from waste, one big issue is essentially your heterogeneous atom content. So, for example, nitrogen con uh, content or sulfur content uh, from your given feedstocks. So, when we add plastics, for example, a lot of plastics are uh, predominantly hydrocarbons or are going to contain oxygen and not other uh, nitrogens or sulfurs in them. So, these inherently also cause a reduction in the heteroatom content in your uh, end oil that you'll be producing. So, there are several advantages uh, of processing plastics and biomass together uh, so that your end oil content would probably be lighter as well as have less nitrogen content uh, as well as be more, have a higher calorific uh, content as well because, yeah, you're essentially processing polyolefin. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's actually an interesting point again, because uh, if you see the synergistic interaction, probably we could reach to a more practical, viable application of the end product, which uh, maybe in next decade or so industries might be trying. And uh, what do you think about catalysis in general in HTL? And uh, I mean, which kind of catalysis you generally use if you use uh, for converting into valuable products or fuel in general or oil in general? So, uh, with respect to catalysis, I would say that it is definitely an important factor that is to be taken into consideration uh, to further improve the quality of oil that you're going to be producing. However, particularly, so catalysis works really well when you have like conformed feedstocks that you know what will happen, which active sites it's going to attack, and etc. etc. However, the type of feedstocks that we handle in HTL are essentially so diverse that studying like these different feedstocks in municipal solid waste is primarily the first concern. And then going more towards catalysis is kind of a later concern, uh, I would say, rather than putting catalysis as the first step. I mean, I really like the point where you said uh, the feedstock in HTL is very diverse. Another result of which using a very generic catalysis mechanism might not suit my end product as such. Whereas if I have the exact feedstock and the sites which I'm activating or working on, then I might end up using catalysis at the end. That's actually a very good uh, perspective on this thing. Uh, okay, so it was really great to hear about your research and such, but I have really very two important questions which I thought that you might be the best person to answer. So my first question is, uh, we have already seen that biomass has been implemented at a large scale and many countries have implemented it and if, like with bioethanol also, and eventually we'll move to other sources of bio, uh, biomass getting into biofuels. But given the amount of plastic waste and the potential it actually carries, how do you see plastic getting converted into usable fuels in next 20 to 30 years and what do countries really need to change in their uh, implementation criteria and uh, uh, the way they handle things in order to shift that uh, dependence over the fossil fuels to uh, plastic converted fuels so i wouldn't say that plastic converted fuels would actually solve like energy crisis or anything of that sort because if you consider like municipal solid waste at as a at large like not just considering plastics if you convert all the calorific value that you have in municipal solid waste for example in the us uh, to oil you'll probably make up around uh, 
5% of total energy consumption of everyone in the US. So it, it is just a small pie of, it's, it's, a, it's a small pie of like the entire problem. And this essentially wouldn't solve uh, the energy problem in any ways. However, having said that, it would definitely solve the waste uh, disposal issue that people are at the moment facing where they are running out of landfills to essentially put all these uh, waste in. And that is where this would likely go into application rather than it be going into application uh, for solving the energy crisis as such. So when, when, if you want to talk about the energy crisis, I would rather say making uh, things like uh, microalgae and other things that are going to be cultivating in order to produce energy, again, would be more beneficial, like, would be more beneficial rather than considering plastic as a source of energy, uh, because it's, it's just a small dot in the sky. Uh, however, having said all that, I still think that monomer or like circular, uh, attaining a circular economy is much more important than uh, trying to convert these into fuels and then just burning them because uh, plastics, as we know, uh, have value added products in them. So if you are going to just convert it into fuel or gasoline, you are going to be co competing directly with the oil industry and they'll definitely be able to produce uh, oil at a much lower price than you would be able to because they have uh, maximized the entire process and that has been going on for over 50 years. So they have optimized pretty much every nook and cranny that you can uh, find that. So that this is kind of my opinion on how bad things are headed, where people will tr rather try to attain a circular economy over uh, trying to develop plastic to oil. Plastic oil will definitely also have a position in attaining a circular economy. However, the fraction of that happening would uh, eventually further and further reduce. And it is kind of just a transition technology towards attaining uh, an absolute uh, circular economy where you're going to be obtaining monomers or obtaining plastics back from plastics. Uh, I, I would say that the recycling process at last uh, that is currently happening is going to be rethinked in uh, such a manner that uh, we'll be trying to improve our uh, entire plastic handling practices and uh, things like that, rather than trying to convert it to a fuel or make energy out of it. We are seeing plastic being used, the final product after HTL or any process being used as a waste reduction technique more than a final application thing. So. You talked a lot about circular economy. Can you just uh, throw more light on what is it actually? So circular economy is essentially what you can think of recycling right now. So for example, a manufacturer makes plastics uh, from fossil fuels and then uh, they make their end product which goes to the consumer. The consumer throws the plastic away and then the plastic ends up in landfills. That's kind of the most likely uh, aspect at the moment. And what the circular economy uh, kind of proposes everyone to do is essentially make uh, monomers or make plastics again uh, from the post-consumer waste or post-consumer plastic that is being thrown out so that you can put it back into the loop of uh, producing end products or producing consumer products back from it. So sending uh, post-consumer waste from 
the consumer back to the plastic manufacturer in order so that they can make new plastic products from it. Finally, uh, the next big question in the room is, uh, uh, this is a very generic question, but uh, I don't think so that there's a very final ultimatum generic answer that what is the possibility that renewable energy might completely uh, replace fossil fuels in ne next 40, 50 years? Because given the statistics, it's like we know that, uh, I mean, I have read the energy report and it says in next 40 to 50 years, uh, petroleum is going to finish and coal is by next century or so. But it's not very practical to say that we can fully uh, change our dependence from fossil fuels to renewable energy given it has its own pros and cons. So what is your take on this often debated topic? I personally think that it's an inevitability just because, uh, you know, like from the climate perspective, as well as from the uh, cost perspective, things are heavily favoring uh, renewable energy at the moment. So for example, in the US over the last year, more renewable energy was essentially like all the new plants that came about, uh, like more renew, renew was that I was more investment on renewable energy than uh, investment on fossil fuels and other things. So it essentially is the direction is going on the right way. Or but however, the pace in which it's going is essentially the uh, issue at large here uh, because uh, people are right now targeting at somewhere around 2035 as the year. Uh, to make a complete transition. And that by itself would need uh, a lot of effort from uh, not just the government, but also people and investors uh, because money kind of talks everywhere. And uh, like recently I heard that a lot of people from Wall Street are like moving away from renewable, uh, from fossil fuel, sorry, uh, to make more investments in renewable energy. So it's kind of going, things are going in the right direction However, uh, I am a skeptic, so uh, hopefully things uh, move along in the way they are going at the moment. But how practical it is? I mean, is it really feasible and plausible given that renewable energy is intermittent and scalability is an issue and even advanced technologies is an issue for, uh, I mean, except solar energy, other uh, kind of renewable energies are still not at their peak of uh, technology and so on. So how practical it is, even if we think of that idea. So uh, it, it is definitely like pe when, when you give people a problem, they find a solution if it is that important of a problem. Uh, and that is why I think that even if you consider wind energy, for example, uh, being really intermittent, if you have enough number of wind, uh, like wind turbines all over the country, then you will damn sure not say that at least one wind turbine or uh, at least one part of the country will have favorable conditions in order to produce enough energy. So like that, for example, uh, there are also other uh, renewable, I wouldn't say particularly renewable energy, but like more sustainable energy, like such as nuclear power, which would likely also come into question as to if it can be further used. Uh, France, for example, like 70% of its energy is essentially uh, nuclear energy and uh, they are more towards attaining uh, carbon neutrality than the rest of the world. So 
there there will definitely be a reinvestioning of how uh, different energy sources are going to be produced and uh, a complete rescale is uh, about to happen uh, but the ways and methodologies are still in the chinks uh, where it's it's kind of not a one way thing to kind of tell yeah it will happen like this because there are so many different resources however solar energy is uh, kind of the first come uh, is kind of the best technique or way at the moment just because it's uh, much cheaper than pretty much anything else uh, that's out there uh, and as you say uh, like it is again intermittent so people would not solely regard solar energy as being the technology however batteries are also improving at the moment uh, so it in the future or 10 or 15 years down the line it might not have the same disadvantages as it does at the moment and that's something that it's important to always keep in mind uh, if you said like that 10 years ago battery car like battery teslas are going to be uh, the what the future is going to be Uh, no one would imagine that being true gm just recently announced that uh, they are going to make all their cars uh, to be electric cars uh, sometime by 2035 so everyone is kind of pushing towards uh, a sustainable future uh, that need just needs to be sustained will to do that uh, without uh, going back on years of what has already been right so that was sesha's take on whether renewable energy will replace fossil fuels or not but i will keep to you guys that what do you guys think do mail me at the mail given in the description so uh, i have this a very basic question again that how do you see your research progressing in the next decade uh for me uh, i would say uh, i'm my the type of research i'm very excited about is essentially sustainable engineering research uh, not specific to hdl but uh, in and around this food water energy nexus area that uh, we need to kind of re-envision the type of products that, that we are producing and how sustainable these products are going to be and uh, at large how in the future we are going to be uh, able to like attain a carbon neutral environment uh, at large Uh, for a given company or a given product uh, at the end of the day and uh, how to think of hdl as a technology uh, for processing waste at large and whether this could be a good replacement for the current state of art uh, in terms of being a sustainable technology or not uh, so that's what i'm trying to learn at the moment uh, right now and that is what i intend to further on proceed wherever uh, where I'm going to go to. So to end up the podcast, I have a few questions so as to lighten up the mood of the all technical things which we have discussed in the last 40 minutes. Uh, so I'll just quickly ask them and you can answer them in the best way possible. What is the first thing you do when you wake up? Uh, I try to not look at my phone. <laughs> uh, to be frank, uh, the first thing I kind of wake up, I just like have uh, some time on my own uh, to just like think as to what I'm going to do uh, for the day and kind of reorganize my thoughts, uh, just so that 
uh, as the day starts i'm pretty sure things are going to go uh, as going to go uh, but i also i always find that uh, first 5 minutes uh, i'd like to be more peaceful and uh, not think about a b c d how do you spend your spare time and uh, if you get something apart from reading papers or working on your project what do you actually do i tend to listen to music a lot so that's uh, predominantly where my spare time goes uh, i also try like to like take my mind off things so i game a bit uh, just so that uh, yeah it, it's kind of going into an alternate world uh, not thinking about what assignments i have or what papers i have to write but yeah just get out of uh, reality and into a fantasy and how do you think i mean i've read a lot about this that you know creative thinking requires you to have some extra space in your life as such and not just fully consumed and work so how does it really helps in your work i mean the activities which you do uh so one thing uh, after coming to us specifically one thing i've uh, learned a lot is uh, i i tend to like have this work schedule where at least two days of the week or one day of the week i don't uh, touch the search essentially because uh, it helps you to recuperate and get back with full force rather than uh, being distracted and trying to brave through work or uh, caffeinating yourself to <laughs> uh get through work uh so that's uh, so i try and tend to try to go out on hikes and like just go out uh at large so that you can kind of uh, get a semblance to normality and clear your thoughts and uh be back next day uh, without distractions right that's great so since the time we have started your phd how many times have you actually thought why me or why am i doing this thing why phd in general <laughs> why did i choose this at the first place <laughs> i mean yeah mid phd crisis is a reality uh, <laughs> to anyone who's starting their phd i'm sorry to say this uh, but i i i i know that my goal at the end like before i joined the phd my phd was essentially uh, to learn sustainable engineering at large and Uh, try to learn how to be a researcher uh, particularly and uh, with my advisor and uh, the clique that i'm surrounded with i would say that uh, it helps a lot to have a good support system uh, where you are to do your work or do your phd in and uh, that kind of has helped me to not think about it so much okay what is Seisha's one habit, professional or personal, which his colleagues don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, I wouldn't say anything particularly uh, that everyone doesn't know. One thing uh, uh, probably could be that I actually have a whiteboard at home where I write down everything I kind of need to do, uh, like pretty much my SOP list. Uh, will be that so i don't uh, follow a things to do list on outlook but rather uh, follow a whiteboard pattern for that and that's something that a lot of people generally don't know my last question is uh, 
what is your vision of future with respect to energy perspective uh, my i wouldn't in in my thought uh, energy in the future will definitely be much more diverse than it is at the moment uh, but you'll have an array of technologies that will be producing energy in a wide scale of uh, ways and i personally believe that a lot of these energies will be more individually produced for example if you have a home you'll be having solar panels in your home probably uh, wind chimes or small wind turbines in your home uh, and you'll be more self sufficient in energy production rather than being uh, a kind of rather than having a central plant which produces energy for everyone uh, however i think that will still definitely be a mix of all types of uh, energies in the energy grid and uh, that will likely uh, have to be the energy future rather than it being from one uh, source such as fossil fuels or etc etc that makes us highly codependent uh, on that given source mm-hmm. well that's an interesting take again thank you sesha for uh... taking out time to really answer those questions and i hope that we'll meet sometime again in next 2 3 years when you have completed your thesis and we have in more interesting takes on these topics thanks yash uh, for the opportunity and it was uh, it was really nice and uh, revealing to me as to what my thoughts are as well uh, to go through this podcast and uh, i eagerly look forward to listening uh, to the other speakers as well that was sesha sai mahadevan discussing about his take on solving the energy crisis through hydrothermal liquefaction it was quite interesting to understand sesha's perspective on how plastic recycling is more crucial for waste minimization than fuel production i hope you liked the first episode of the research guy podcast do mail me at the email given in the description if you wish me to interview a scientist or a group of researchers on a topic of your interest I'll meet you soon for the next episode of the Research Guy podcast. Until then, stay tuned and keep innovating.